Our text is in John, the Gospel of John. And so I'll read verses 15 through 18. So John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings, and we ask you to open our minds to understand your word more clearly and to live it out more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our text is, uh, I think this message is fourth in this series, uh, Final Admonitions of Christ to His Apostles. And I wanted to uh, recap a little bit because it's been uh, six weeks, I think, since I was up here, five weeks maybe, for a communion meditation. And so uh, in verses 7 through 11 of this same chapter, 14, uh, we had the preeminence of the Father illustrated. And so Christ honors his Father, and it was in part in a rebuke to Philip because Philip said, just show us the Father. And Jesus rebuked him, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the Father? So what Jesus was saying was that he is a perfect reflection of his Father, which is uh, wonderful because God was perfect and therefore Jesus is perfect and they're of absolutely one mind, one heart. They uh, agree on everything and they have no disagreement. There's no disharmony whatsoever. And so we bear resemblances to our earthly fathers and this is a mixed bag. And so it's not necessarily a blessing that we look physically like our father. He might have been a rather homely man and we might be rather homely children. And also, he might not have been a very godly man. And so we might be like him in reflecting his character and bad behavior. And so we have to be careful with what we uh, model for our children. And as children, we have to be careful of what we emulate in our father. And yet we know that with Christ, there was no worry with stuff like that. And that's why Jesus rebuked Philip, saying, I am a perfect reflection of my Father. If you can't see the Father through me, then you can't see me. And so then he goes on to the next portion, speaking of himself, and this is the authority of the Son in verses 12 to 14. And this is where he reminds them that he has all authority. God has given him all authority. And uh, Jesus was granted this by his Father, and he exercises this then and now. So that's why we emphasized that time that all requests of the Father are to be made in the name of Christ because it's only on Christ's merits that God will tell us the time of day. Uh, we are all rebels in God the Father's eyes and it's His Son that has made us all acceptable in His sight. So now, here, I want to ask you first to whom Jesus is speaking. And let me read it again. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. So now, who is he speaking to? We should then look back 
in our text to see who it is that we're speaking to. And yet, I've defined this whole talk series by who he's speaking to, right? He's speaking to his apostles. And by this time, Judas has been ejected. So he is speaking to the remaining 11 apostles. I ask you then, is he speaking to us? Can we just ignore this? Because, well, Jesus was speaking to his apostles, it doesn't apply to us. You see, there, there's a way that you can phrase that that makes it seem like you have to go one way or the other, right? And so it's the uh, way that a, a lot of people argue things and debate things. They try to box you in to, these are the only two options. What, but that's not necessarily true. Yes, he's speaking to his apostles, but yet so often God's word goes on to speak to us as well. But that's why it's important that you first understand what exactly he means by speaking to his apostles. And then what does he mean by speaking to us? There's a priority, an emphasis here. You have to take it in the context in which it was given. So now, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. So what's the first statement? It's a conditional statement, right? If you love me, obey me. That's what he said. If you love me, obey me. Then he says, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper. So what is implied is that you must obey in order for me to send the helper, right? It seems obvious to me. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we can't regard the Spirit's coming here as coming in salvation or else it begins with our obedience and therefore it's works righteousness. And so it can't be related to that or it can't be at least only that. And so when it says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. We're not talking about salvation, the salvific effects of the Holy Spirit because Jesus would be predicating that on the fact that you're obeying me. Therefore, you've earned this gift that I'm giving you of the Holy Spirit. So then, I believe there are, is an additional argument that also means this, because he says two arguments, salvation then would be granted due to obedience, the first one, and the second one, skip down to near the end of 17. He dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. So what Jesus is speaking of then are two contexts in terms of the tense of this word. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he will be in you. He's speaking of some future state now in which the Holy Spirit is in these apostles, not in a way that the Holy Spirit is in them now. So again, if this is referring to salvation, it's predicated on their obedience. And then they are directing the Spirit as to the, uh, instead of the Spirit directing himself, right? Which is what Jesus said to Nicodemus when he was asked, the Spirit blows where He wills. So see, we know then that this is not speaking about salvation. So what is this indwelling? And did this, what Jesus is saying, just apply to these apostles on this day? Or does it apply to us today? So now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He said, you know Him. In verse 17, you know Him. Is he speaking of the Father? No, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, he dwells with you and will be in you. So
So now the question is, is this true of us as well? And so let's answer the question. Look at 2 Timothy 1.4. Second Timothy 1.4 says, oh, maybe that's not the text. Oh, 1.14, I'm sorry. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So the Holy Spirit is dwelling in Paul. He's dwelling in Timothy. So then 1 Corinthians 6, 19. This is in the context of a, a larger body of, of uh, Paul's speaking specifically of how we live. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So see, there's a sense then that the Holy Spirit is in us in that we are saved, right? When we're saved, we're in the Holy Spirit. Yet, Jesus is referring to something slightly different. He's referring to this filling of the Spirit that he's promised to these apostles. And this spirit will fill you. And I believe the New Testament continues to use that as a distinction. The Holy Spirit is in us and is referred to as a down deposit, a, a deposit of the down payment of our faith, of our redemption. We're sealed for that day of redemption, that salvation. And so we're sealed while here in the flesh on this earth, prior to death, physical death. And yet also we are filled when the Holy Spirit comes into us, and what is that in response to? In our context, obedience. So there's a truth to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in all of his children, but yet the Holy Spirit is poured out in greater measure to those who are living in obedience to him as well. So by our dis acts of disobedience, by our living lives of uh, lack of devotion to God, we are inhibiting the Holy Spirit to be freely in us, filling us with himself. What did Paul warn us about doing with the Holy Spirit or not doing? He warned us to not quench the Spirit. So in other words, when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin or encouraging us in some good work, don't quench that. Because why then would the Holy Spirit come back tomorrow or next week to do the same thing? We are quenching the Spirit's activity in our lives, in our heart, in our spirit. Then the other one is do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we've been redeemed. In, uh, he dwells in us. So there is this sense then in which the Holy Spirit and, and only is in his people. Yet do you want a greater measure of God's Spirit in you. And if you do, which is what any sane Christian would respond, yes, I do, you have to want it to the degree that it drives you to obedience. When, when the phrase is here saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, we have to remember that, that our not sinning is far more 
than behavioral modification. Hedges are a part of how we try to structure our lives such that we can live lives of obedience to the Lord. But that in and of itself is merely an aid in trying to get us to what our goal is. What is our goal? Our goal is where our treasure is, is where our heart is. And Jesus said we can't serve two masters. So what he's saying is that if we have anything competing for our affection for God, then that will distract us from living a life of obedience to God. So when we are confronted by our own sin, and we are disappointed in ourselves, and we want to do better next time, we want to do better tomorrow, you have to realize that it's not primarily about the habits and the hedges that you're keeping. Those are good, but they're not adequate. It is your love of God that drives you on. It is your love of God that drives you to act obediently, to be obedient. And then, when you're behaving like that and when your actions are consistent with where your heart uh, focus is, it's simple. It's a joy. You don't feel that it's work. Whereas if it's simply behavior modification, it's all work. It's all uphill. And so you will not succeed via that path to be obedient. So when you read in the scripture, be obedient or be holy, realize that that's a shortcut. That's a, a, an extremely condensed way of saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then your actions will follow. And so as we come to the table, this is a means of grace for us. And yet our obedience in serving the Lord is a means of grace for us. Yet, it all comes to us through our hunger for God, our desire to know God more, to have more of His Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and have us reflecting more the character of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word, though it can be difficult sometimes to parse, uh, there is so much of it that is so clear that really... Uh, we need not be confused. We need not be wallowing in any doubts. And so we pray, Lord, for clarity. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, indwell us, would drive us to a deeper uh, way of living and loving you and uh, carrying out your will on this earth. We thank you, Father, for the many good habits that we might be able to employ, the much good advice we might get from other people. And yet we pray, Lord, that we would not substitute even good habits for a true love of you in our hearts. And so we thank you now for your presence with us. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.